Hello and welcome to Praying on Purpose. Last Sunday, we reflected upon the fact that prayer seems to exist simultaneously within two different realms, two different dimensions, that at least on the surface appear to be at odds one with the other. The earliest references of prayer that we find in Tanakh indicate that prayer is something which was somewhat spontaneous, that individuals could daven at any time and any place and say whatever they want. It was something which was deeply personal, very flexible, customizable, and that is on a certain level the prayer that we are introduced to from the earliest of times. On the other hand, the Torah directs us to engage in what is called avoda, uliyavda v'chalavavchem, and avoda worship, the way it is prescribed in the Torah, certainly, as far as avoda samitosh is concerned, seems to be the exact opposite, very clearly defined, a very highly regulated set of practices and procedures, uh, a specific order, a time and a place for everything, very little room to be spontaneous, and doing so can, could be, in some cases, a fatal error. And there are no texts associated with the sacrificial service. So when confronted with tefillah the way we see it in the earliest of times, and the way we would like on a certain level to sort of connect with it even today, and contrasting that with avoda, the way it appears within the Torah itself, we're somewhat confused as to what exactly is the, the ideal form of prayer. And when presented with these two different models, if you will, these two different paradigms of prayer, we are left somewhat confused as to what is the ideal prayer? What is, supposed to, what is prayer supposed to look like? What am I actually doing every time that I am davening? Is, is it the more customizable, personal, flexible sort of tefillah, or is it this highly regulated and scripted avoda? So what I'd like to do today is continue this conversation, but as I think I indicated last week, I really think to do this properly, we are going to have to take several weeks to do so. And in order to really appreciate where we are today, we have to focus a little bit on different points along the historical timeline and understand how prayer evolved into what it is today. Clearly, when the Beis Hamikdash was standing, and when there was an Avodos Hamikdash, so what we had in place was a system that was very highly scripted, it was prescribed, and there was a very, very specific and rigid and inflexible set of laws. But of course, as we know, the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. And when that happened, obviously, the effects of that were catastrophic upon the Jewish people for many, many reasons. But as we can find even references within Tanakh, one of the ways that it completely shattered the spirit of the people is that it was no longer clear to them how we are to actually go ahead and worship Hashem. How do we communicate with Hashem? How do we connect with God? How do we talk to God? In fact, we find in a rather famous passage in Tehillim Kufl Amadzayin, on the Horos Bavel, David HaMelech describes how the people sat on the banks of the Babylonian rivers. And they sat there and cried when remembering Zion. So here these people had been exiled from the land of Israel and coming to their, their new home in this foreign land, completely bereft and shattered. The Pasuk goes on to say that we, we took our instruments that we would use in the base of Mikdash and we, we hung them up. How are we supposed to go ahead and just sing songs to God, songs of praise, on foreign land? 
In other words, the initial reaction to Golos was, how are we supposed to pray? How are we supposed to turn to God and praise Him? How are we supposed to sing in prayer the way we did in the Mikdash? We no longer have a Mikdash, and so therefore they felt completely silenced. They felt that this was no longer an option for them. At a certain point, not so long after, things started to shift and things started to change. And there was this realization that we may be here for a while. However long it's going to be, we have to sort of make the best of what we have. And we find, and again, in a somewhat a very famous description, which is found in the sixth parak of Sefer Daniel, when Daniel learned that there was an edict, essentially prohibiting Jews from praying to their God. So what did he do? He goes into his house and he opens the windows and he stands facing Yerushalayim. And three times a day, says the Pasuk, he would get down on his knees and he would pray and he would thank the Rabboni Shalom and he would try to do this in an effort not only to defy these edicts, but it would seem as a means of helping the people understand that while we are here, we need to establish a formal system of prayer. In, again, another very famous passage that is found in the 8th parak of Sefer Nehemiah, when a small group of people returned to Eretz Yisrael after the first exile. So they came back and they gathered in the streets by the main gathering place in Yerushalayim and Ezra, as it's described over here, is recognizing the fact that there were so many people, unfortunately, who could not even read Hebrew. They were completely illiterate. They had forgotten how to speak Hebrew. They weren't even gone that long. But they no longer knew their original mother tongue. And so therefore he set up a platform and started to read from the Torah and did did so in an effort, it would seem, to begin a process by which gathering together as groups of people and praying in some sort of formal way is going to be sort of the new, the new order from this point going forward. And the Rambam, in the very beginning of Hilchus Tefillah, Perik Aleph, actually describes this evolution, and I encourage you to take a look inside, that at the time of the Gullus, in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, there was complete and total assimilation, and people forgot how to even speak, like I said, speak the Hebrew language, and there was so much confusion. And so therefore, said the Rambam, when, the problem was when people would dive in, everybody would do it in their own way. People would not know exactly what to ask for, how to ask for it. And there was such confusion and there was such disorder. There was this great sense of disunity that started to spread around across the entire Jewish people. And says the Rambam, when Ezra saw this and his Bezdin saw this, he instituted what we call Shmon Esrei. They instituted that there was going to be an order, a proper sequence to do this. Three brachos that are going to serve as a unit of expressing Shevach to Hashem. There are going to be a middle section of what was initially 12 and now 13 brachos in which we ask for the things that we want and we need, personal needs and national needs. And then three brachos at the end designated for Hodaya, for expressions of, of thanksgiving. And ultimately, says the Rambam, the goal over here wasn't just to offer the people a template, a format with which they can daven, but the idea over here was a way of uniting the entire Jewish people. And it wasn't just the prayer experience which started to formalize and crystallize over time, but the concept of a shul, of a synagogue, becoming a mikdash ma'at. The Navi Yechezkel tells us in Perak Aleph, very famous reference to the concept of a mikdash ma'at. L'chein amor, ko amar Hashem alokim, ki hirchaktim bagoyim, when I send you out and I distance you among the nations, v'chi hafitzosim ba'aratzos, 
and you are going to be scattered in foreign lands, you will have for yourselves a mikdash ma'at. Think about that. A mini temple. Each and every shul, a beis a synagogue, is on a certain level a miniature temple. And this is not my interpretation. The Gemara Megillah says this. I'm Rabbi Yitzchak, why do we understand a mikdash ma'at? When we find ourselves on a foreign land and we gather in these centers that we call a base HaKnesses, a synagogue, a base Medrash, these are what? These are to be understood as miniature temples. So again, we're, we're skipping a lot of points along the way, but what's, so, what's essentially emerging over here, originally, tefillah was something which, as we described, as we presented, was very spontaneous, was unscripted, and was completely flexible. And then, slowly but surely, what emerges is a very prescribed order, one in which the Torah introduces through the concept of avoda, in which everything was very strictly regulated and was very rigid. But with the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, the Jewish people needed to develop for themselves a system of prayer, which would ultimately allow them to sort of fuse these two concepts together. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Chonol Avracha, in his introduction to the Koran Siddur, so he writes, the synagogue was one of the greatest revolutions in the history of the religion in society. It was the first place of worship made holy, not because of any historic association, not because sacrifices were offered, but simply because people gathered there to study and pray. It embodied one of the great truths of monotheism, that the God of everywhere could be worshipped anywhere. Rabbi Saxo beautifully captures what is so significant about a Beis HaKnesses, and that is that we show that essentially our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is portable. We can take it with us from place to place. It doesn't have to be only in a set place and that place only, but there is a benefit in us coming together. There is a benefit in serving God in a unified fashion. There is a benefit in having a common language. And so therefore, he writes, after the loss of the second temple, it became the home in exile of a scattered people. Every synagogue was a fragment of Jerusalem. And though the destruction of the temple meant that sacrifices could no longer be offered, in their place came an offering of words, namely prayer. And so therefore, we are beginning to see, again, I would like to continue this conversation, please God, next Sunday, because really we have to sort of bring it home and see how these two worlds merge and fuse in what we have today. But what we are beginning to see at the time of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash is the emergence of a new type of system of prayer, one which incorporates the very flexible model of prayer that we saw back in biblical times with the Avodah HaMikdash and then combining into a new entity, the one which we are very familiar with, the one that we experience today every time we daven. Now, before I let you go for today, I must point out that even though we are presenting prayer the way we know it today as being something which evolved somewhat organically, starting with a flexible form of prayer, and then graduating to a level of avoda, and then ultimately becoming sort of re, some sort of reassembled, reconstituted uh, combination of the two, that's not really the whole story. Because the truth is what we find even at the time of the dedication of the Beis HaMikdash, and here I refer you to the eighth chapter of Sefer Malachim, Malachim Aleph, at the moment of the inauguration of the first temple, Shlomo HaMelech turns to the people, and it's a very, very beautiful prayer. And again, I encourage you to take a look inside. 
numerous references to the concept of tefillah and tachina and rina. This was not supposed to be a place where there would just be a dry service to God. And on and on and on. Shlomo Melech gathers the people in front of the newly dedicated temple and says, this is going to be a place where you can develop a personal connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is a place where you are going to be turning to Hashem through tefillah, through tchina, and rina. And so therefore, we have to understand that the two models, the way we're presenting them, were never intended to be mutually exclusive one of the other. There was always an integration, but there were stages in history, and then with the destruction of the base Amigdash, prayer the way we see it today was, like I said, some sort of reconstituted version. So uh, today's discussion was, I, I hope, helpful. Oh, it's helpful to me. Less so in terms of, uh, on, a, on a practical, instructive level, what does this mean for us? But continuing to understand how we got to where we are today. And this is, like I said, the second part in a three or four part Sunday discussion, and I hope by the time we are able to complete this conversation, we will understand and appreciate more what it is that we are doing today, why it is that we daven in the way that we do, and slowly but surely, we will begin to almost, I would say preemptively, address some of the questions that often, I would say, haunt some of the people davening. Why do I have to daven in another language? Why do I have to say words that are not my words? Why is it necessary for me to say the same things again and again and again? Why does it matter if I daven in a shul as opposed to my house? These are all really important questions. And they all deserve their own attention and focus. But understanding how we got to where we are today will make it much easier for us to understand and appreciate and truly internalize some of the important messages and lessons and answers to these very, very important questions. So thank you so much. And have a wonderful day.